Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of the Hedging Screens podcast. As always, I'm your host, Zach Cronin, and I just want to extend my deepest and sincerest condolences to any Kansas City Chiefs fans, also to anyone who spent a lot of money on the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, it was, it's, you're probably going through it right now. The wounds are still fresh, I would imagine. I mean, it's only Tuesday. And it'll only be Wednesday after the Chiefs had arguably one of the worst showings in Super Bowl history, at least in recent memory, of course. This past Sunday, we saw the GOAT Tom Brady, the current GOAT Tom Brady, who is about 67 years old. Remember, Tom Brady is a geriatric quarterback at this point. Him and his Tampa Bay Buccaneers just fucking weaponized to the gills with guys like Mike Evans, Rob Gronkowski, Ronald Jones, Leonard Fournette going up against probably the team that would match up with them the best in the Kansas City Chiefs, quarterbacked by the future GOAT, young Patrick Mahomes, the $500 million man, uh, also quite the weapons at their disposal. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire running back. They got Travis Kelsey. They got Tyreek Kill. They got playmakers on defense. And none of those guys showed up for the Chiefs. It was just so disgusting and so vomit-inducing watching them play. And it was almost from the start. Like, I don't know what it was, but the Chiefs got nothing going on offense, which is quite incredible when you remember that their offense just pretty much put up 30 on anybody they played. There was no defense that could control the Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, Patrick Mahomes had an MVP caliber season, did not win it, and I felt that Aaron Rodgers definitely deserved the MVP over Patrick Mahomes. This dude just balled out, but I mean, just week in and week out, Patrick Mahomes was doing whatever he wanted offensively, slinging the ball all across the field to Tyree Kill, to Travis Kelsey, to Sammy Watkins, to Mecole Hardman, to pretty much whoever was able to get behind the defense fast enough. And of course, they had Clyde Edwards-Alaire, the rookie running back out of, I think, LSU, didn't have the most spectacular rushing season, but was still a reliable weapon in Andy Reid's offense. And all of that just went out the window. It looked like the Chiefs missed the flight to the Super Bowl and a local team out of a local high school team out of Kansas City took their place. The offense was fucking abhorrent. The defense couldn't stick anybody. I mean, Andy Reid, I don't know what happened. Andy Reid just turned into like me on the sideline. Someone who looked like they had no football experience, someone who looked like they didn't even win a Super Bowl the previous year, which is mind-blowing to me. And I think what's going to stick out the most, I have this, the numbers pulled up right here. So Tampa Bay pretty much wrapped this game up by halftime. Going into the half, it was 21-6, to right? And the Chiefs had to come out, get a stop, score. They had to do all of that early. And they went up, they went down 10 additional points. The final 10 points that would pretty much seal the coffin shut. It starts with Patrick Mahomes. And I really don't want to shit on him as hard as maybe some people are. I haven't really been listening to a lot of the reaction 
from the Super Bowl just because um, a lot of it has focused on Tom Brady, and we'll get into him in a little bit, but I'm just going to give you Patrick Mahomes' stat line for this game. So 26 of 49, 270 yards, no touchdowns, two interceptions. He got sacked three times, and this was the guy who I thought was going to go into the Super Bowl, pass for upwards of 300 yards, throwing two touchdown passes, and I thought that this was going to be a shootout. I expected the final score to be like 34-30 in favor of the Chiefs. I really thought the Chiefs had a legitimate shot to win, and they came out and they just looked like the worst team. But we're going to get to this in a second. So Patrick Mahomes' performance, although it wasn't that great, I don't know how much of it was his fault because it just seemed like every time this man got the ball, he was doing the moonwalk. This was fucking... Michael Mahomes at quarterback. This guy was backpedaling, pirouetting, looking like a figure skater on the football field because his offensive line was quite actually non-existent. He got pressured on, I think, 52% of his dropbacks. Like, how are you even, how are you supposed to conduct your offense when the offensive line is just letting the pass rush through? Like, it's like they're on a boat like, I mean, they looked like they were trying to fucking plug up the holes in the Titanic with how bad their offensive line performance was. It was just so, it was really actually very disheartening to watch this because we know Patrick Mahomes can play better than his 52.3 passer rating, but the offensive line just didn't, it didn't afford him that opportunity. And there were a couple throws that this dude made where he was like, there was this one I remember quite vividly where he was parallel to the dirt. This dude was fucking belly on the ground almost, and he gets rid of the ball, and Tyreek Hill almost catches it for six. Like, parallel to the dirt, and almost through a touchdown pass. There was another one where he was getting pulled down by one of the fucking behemoths on the Bucks offensive line, and as his ass is about to touch the dirt, he flings this ball to the corner of the end zone to... um. I forgot who it was. I think it was that Pringle dude, or maybe it was, um, I think it was that Pringle cat. And again, he made a diving one hand catch, but was only a couple inches out of bounds. And it really is a shame that we couldn't have gotten a signature Mahomes performance, because I think this might've been the worst game he's ever played in his NFL career, probably even like dating back to college. I mean, this guy had absolutely nothing going. It's really almost impossible to describe how bad Patrick Mahomes was almost because of his offensive line because there was just nothing he could do and then also the Bucks secondary did a fantastic job shutting down the Chiefs receivers I mean Travis Kelsey and Tyreek Hill had 17 combined receptions on 25 targets Kelsey of course got his got a bulk of the work with 133 yards but I mean when you're when all you can do is throw check downs and throw little you know five six seven eight yard passes you can't really break the defense open Tyreek Hill wasn't really that even that big of a vertical threat of his 73 yards the longest was 23 so he got what is that 50 yards on six other catches working out to fewer than 10 yards per catch I mean the Bucks defensive backs I don't know how much credit they're getting, but uh, I think Todd Bowles is the defensive coordinator of this team. Todd Bowles really coached just a fantastic, a fantastic game 
defensively, like the Chiefs, one of the most dynamic offenses in NFL history, got nothing going. They mustered 270 yards through the air and less than 100 on the ground, or about 100 on the ground. I should say 64 and 33 is 97 plus 10, 107. But like, at least compared to what the Bucs were doing, this was, you would think that the Chiefs were 9-7 and seven and just like waltzed into the Super Bowl by nothing more than luck. And we're going to flip it. We're going to focus on the Bucs and how Tom Brady really just picked apart this defense. Admittedly, I don't think the Chiefs defense was great throughout the year. Uh, they were, at least in terms of points allowed, they were above average, 10th out of 32. But not like a super elite defense. They do, however, have a bunch of playmakers on defense. And those guys were, <laughs> again, just non-existent. Nothing, they could not rattle Tom Brady at all. This guy had the total opposite of Patrick Mahomes' pocket protection. Tom Brady could stand in the pocket for as long as he pleased and just sling the ball to whomever. It didn't happen because the Chiefs just couldn't guard anybody. So Tom Brady's holding the ball for two and a half, three seconds, getting it out. You know, Gronkowski's open, gets a quick 15 yards, and then he flings it over the top to Mike Evans, who actually, Mike Evans didn't really do much of anything this game. Mike Evans had one catch for 31 yards. Really, it was Leonard Fournette, Rob Gronkowski, and Antonio Brown doing a majority of the work. I mean, Gronk had easily the best day. Probably could have made the case for Super Bowl MVP, but it's very rare to see it not go to a quarterback. Six receptions, 67 yards, two touchdowns. But Brady, 21 of 29 for 200 yards, three touchdowns. I mean, it was just so... It was a... It was... I feel like it was a typical Tom Brady performance in the Super Bowl. I mean, you know... He really did. Let me adjust the chair here. He really did look like someone who has been there six previous times and won five and won four previous MVPs. Like he was just on another level. There's no other way to describe it. And even if there were a few suspect calls, and I'm not gonna sit here and be all upset that Tom Brady won another Super Bowl. I'm not one of those people. I'm more upset that the Chiefs couldn't just like put together a decent game. Like that was really the hardest thing for me was seeing the Chiefs get go down so sad. They were like I don't I, I'm at a loss. I don't even know how to I really can't even articulate my feelings. It was just really really disheartening to watch and very surprising and I wonder what this is gonna do for the coming years because like there's now a game plan to beat the Kansas City Chiefs I mean previously they had only two losses in the regular season and a lot of the times it's just teams getting lucky and Patrick Mahomes having an off day but I don't know how many of those off days are the product of the defensive pressure or of just him not having it because we see athletes not have it all the time. You know, some guys just come out and can't produce some days and you hope that they're all worked out in the regular season and that way they don't really crumble in the playoffs. But Patrick Mahomes looked like shit because Tampa Bay 
made him look like shit. And I'm not like super into the X's and O's of football. And I'm sure there are some other guys way smarter than me who can break down what actually that Bucks did to rattle Mahomes and this electrifying offense. But it's there's now a game plan to beating the Chiefs. And the best part about it is that, again, it didn't come down to them beating themselves. Of course, it helps that the Buccaneers are f- fucking so electrifying themselves, having Tom Brady, Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, even though the latter two guys weren't as prevalent in this game, they were still there. And the Chiefs had to give them that attention. And that's why Gronk was open. That's why AB was open. That's why Brady was able to check down to Fournette out of the backfield. And that's why Cameron Brate was open as well. Because, I mean, you know, you have to give Mike Evans and Chris Godwin that attention. There are two all-pro caliber receivers who really deserve double teams every down and then you're just playing straight up man coverage but yeah I'm not really one to look towards for the actual breakdown of what the Tampa Bay Buccaneers did I just know that Todd Bowles and Byron Leftwich called a fantastic game and really the overarching theme that I've been seeing recently is again not so much on what does this mean for Patrick Mahomes because Patrick Mahomes again 25 years old already has a Super Bowl under his belt already has an MVP under his belt, on track to be the greatest quarterback of all time if he continues to want produce at the level he's already producing at, and if he's able to pretty much dominate the league for an extended amount of years. Um, this is you know just a little blemish on the resume. No big deal. A bunch of guys, lo- well, actually there are a handful of guys who lose the Super Bowl every year. Tom Brady's lost a couple of Super Bowls. I mean, I really don't see people holding him to a much lesser degree. And of course, we're going to get into this a little bit later. But when it comes to championships in team sports, so much context is necessary. And I don't think you'll be able to talk about this Super Bowl without also talking about how shitty, for lack of a better term, the Chiefs O-line was and how great the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were. But a lot of the talk recently has been Tom Brady. And now with his seven, his seventh Super Bowl title, which is fucking crazy to think about. And even crazier when you consider that he could easily have nine or 10 because he lost to the Giants twice. He lost to, who was it? The Eagles, I think, when Nick Foles beat him a couple of years ago. I'm just going to actually fact check this real quick. Because I know he lost in 2007, which was fantastic. He lost again in 2012. I thought it was 2011, but it was 2012. And then he lost a couple years later in 2018. So Tom Brady could have had, he could have 10 Super Bowl titles right now. He could be the Bill Russell of the NFL. I mean, he kind of already is. He's got more titles than every other franchise, which is even crazier. But his recent and extended dominance really calls into question, like, is he the goat of goats as far as team sports are concerned? And this is in, this is easily a very entertainable, and I don't think that's a word. This is an argument that you could definitely entertain but the company 
that he keeps is really what's going to dictate it. So everyone's been talking about Jordan and Brady. Who is the GOAT of GOATs? People say it's Tom Brady because he's got seven professional titles. Others will say it's Michael Jordan because although he's only got six professional titles, he didn't lose in any of the finals, which again, a valid argument. But people excluding Kareem from this conversation, I don't think is fair. Kareem has six NBA titles, has, I want to he's got like two or three titles in college. He's got a whole bunch of high school titles. This dude, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, is just as, how can I even say this? He is as prolific a winner as Tom Brady. I think Kareem deserves to be in that conversation. Bill Russell, of course, having 11 titles. You can miss me with that fucking bullshit where his titles are seemingly less valid because he played in the 60s when the competition wasn't at its greatest. Listen, you can kick rocks with that argument because it's not Bill Russell's fault that he was born when he was born. Bill Russell, if he had come along a couple decades later in the 80s or 90s, he would have been just as dominant as he was back in the day. And he would still probably have six or seven titles if he went to the right team. This dude was ahead of his time. And when he was on the court back then, shitting on these plumbers and these part-time electricians, he looked like someone who could play in any decade. So please put some respect on Bill's on Bill Russell's name. I will not have it here. We will not take the disrespect. I also want to mention the God, Big Shot Bob, Robert Ori, who just Robert Ori's career. Seven titles. One of the winningest, most winningest players in the history of the NBA. And he gets to stay almost anonymous. So under the radar. Shout out to Robert Ori, who shared a fucking amazing meme. The other day was the Spider-Man meme where he was, it was him and Tom Brady pointing at each other with all of their collective trophies scattered about. And this actually reminds me of how I wanted to describe the Chiefs offensive line. You know that one meme where it's the SWAT team with the battering ram and they're going to break into this house and it's the Cheeto at, you have the door and the lock and the, the, <laughs> the only thing that's keeping the door shut is a Cheeto and that those dudes are ready to fucking blast through there that was the tampa bay the tampa bay i fucking ruined the joke god damn it i ruined the fucking joke anyway that was the chiefs offensive line the chiefs offensive line they could have been the fucking kansas city cheetos for how just how inexplicably bad they were and everyone was always talking about how elite this chiefs line is and they failed patrick mahomes i don't i don't even know if they failed him but all I know is Todd Bowles made them look silly. So again, congratulations to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Tom Brady may very well be the goat of goats in team sports. And I remember I spoke about that a couple weeks ago before the Super Bowl, where it's wrong to compare team sport athletes to individual sport athletes. Namely, I was talking about Tom Brady and guys like Michael Jordan compared to people like um, Serena Williams, Tiger Woods, Muhammad Ali, guys like that, because I just want to reiterate when you're in a when you're on a team context is required because there is so much the margin for error is way greater than if you're by yourself in a boxing ring or if you're on a tennis court or if you're in the octagon. I think I used this example this example almost verbatim a couple weeks ago that if Serena Williams loses to 
I don't know, some other female tennis player, whether it's Naomi Osaka or Maria Sharapova. I don't even know if she's still playing, but we'll take Naomi Osaka. Serena Williams knows that she simply got outplayed. It's not a case like this where Mahomes didn't play great, yes, but the offensive line played like garbage. The defense was non-existent. I mean, the Bucks ran for 150 yards. Leonard Fournette looked like the second coming of Barry Sanders, had 90 yards on 16 attempts just from top to bottom. The Chiefs had a horrible performance on offense. And again, I'm very saddened to have watched that. I did win a dollar off of it, though. I bet my friend, Martin, <laughs> that if the Bucks won, he'd have to give me a dollar. If the Chiefs won, I'd have to give him a dollar. So I am $1 richer to, because of Tom Brady and the rest of that team. So again, I just want to extend a congratulations to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers organization. And Tom Brady is still a force to be reckoned with, even though he only threw for 200 yards. Three touchdowns, just picked the Chiefs defense apart. They looked like they had never played against a professional quarterback with how unable they were to slow down the Buccaneers offense. So again, shout out to them. And now that the NFL season has concluded, you can pretty much focus solely on the NBA. And there is a lot of shit going down. Players are I don't want to say upset about the potential All-Star game, but they're definitely less than thrilled. I know LeBron said that he pretty much was entirely disinterested in playing in an All-Star game. Giannis echoed those sentiments pretty much. Um, I think De'Aaron Fox said um, pretty much something along the same lines as LeBron and how it's kind of just strange that the NBA is going out of their way to have all these protocols in place and then just make the players go out and travel to Atlanta, use up all those resources just for an all-star game, which as we know, isn't really like an event that a lot of people look forward to. Like it's kind of just there. I mean, it's cool to watch the players go out and, you know, see the stars take the floor all on the same teams and go up against each other. But it's not really like, it's not what you would expect would happen so the players are really disinterested in participating and I can't blame them I mean the season is super stressful as it is with having to go through all the COVID protocols the isolating on the road the tests every day probably even multiple times a day like we saw with Kevin Durant and that whole fucking debacle which I still don't understand for anyone who doesn't know a couple days ago the Nets were playing, I think it might have been the Sixers, or it was whoever they played right before the Sixers, but Kevin Durant was at first not cleared to play because he had come in contact with someone who tested positive for the coronavirus. Even though Kevin Durant had already failed the test, there was contract tracing going on, but for whatever reason, in the second quarter, after he had already been ruled out, the NBA was like, oh, hey. Yeah, you're you can go play now. It's like, no, nah, you're good. You can go take the court and be with your team. Go and play because it's Kevin Durant. Obviously, if he's active, he's gonna fucking play. Like this is the future MVP of the of the NBA. He's gonna go out, he's gonna play. And then he's on the court for like three minutes, it feels like. And then Steve Nash gets a call from the league and he's like, Oh, Kevin Durant can't play anymore. It's like, well, 
why the fuck did you clear him if like it just it doesn't make any sense because the NBA kind of just like shat all over themselves like we get that stars are held to a different standard when it comes to how the league treats them because they bring in the money they bring in the fan engagement people watch the NBA to see guys like LeBron, KD, Steph, Giannis, they're the ones drawing the eyes. No disrespect to any of the other non-stars, but it's, it, that's how it is. That's how sports work. It's entertainment. You want to see the best and the most entertaining players. So for the NBA to not clear Kevin Durant and then to clear him again, only to unclear him, sets such a bad precedent. And they released this bogus statement when really all we want is for them to just be like, hey, we made a mistake. This shouldn't have happened. We should have let Kevin Durant. We should have not let Kevin Durant play because what if he does test positive and he got a false negative or something? He was in the locker room with the rest of his team. So the rest of his team is, je is in jeopardy. And then, no, it wasn't the Sixers because they had to travel to play the Sixers. So whoever the fuck they were playing before that is now in jeopardy because they were in direct contact with someone who tested positive. Fortunately, Kevin Durant is still churning out negative tests. He's been tested pretty much every day since this happened. He won't be able to rejoin the team until Friday, which or this coming Friday, which sucks. But that really isn't the issue. The issue is that the, N the NBA just kind of contradicted themselves with this, where they were super strict about contact tracing and postponing games and having guys miss a significant amount of time even if they're not even if they didn't have the virus themselves so for them to be that strict about everything and then to only walk back on it because it was an abnormal situation with one of their star players the optics are not that great and the NBA's protocol already isn't that great so for them to bring all this unnecessary attention to themselves it's really just kind of mind-boggling, actually. So that kind of that kind of pissed off everybody. Like it was kind of just like you had to shrug and just be like, why? Why even make this a big deal? Why go through the hassle of having to deactivate, then activate, then deact then re-deactivate somebody? I don't even know if re-deactivate is a word, but it is now. It was just so dumb. And then Kevin Durant's like free KD. And I totally understand it because, you know, he's testing negative. And you would think that if someone tests negative, they should be able to go out and play. But that's not how the NBA wants to do it, unfortunately. I'm not really here to critique their protocol. I just hope they kind of smooth everything out for the playoffs because the season has been super bumpy. Right now, there have been a whole bunch of postponements, which I'm not against but just the way they're conducting everything like the whole contact tracing shit where guys are still forced to quarantine if they're not positive it just doesn't really make that much sense to me but I'm not here to shit on the NBA too hard because after all what they did in the bubble last year definitely worked and I believe um Shams tweeted like everyone why am I yawning the fuck? Excuse me. I think the last time the NBA did their batch of testing, it was reported that zero players tested positive for COVID, which is absolutely incredible. So shout out to the players 
for keeping themselves safe and not jeopardizing anybody. And I also think that kind of plays a part to the whole dissatisfaction about potentially playing in an all-star game because, you know, the players are doing all this work to stay safe. And then the NBA is kind of just putting them at risk by making them travel unnecessarily for a weekend that doesn't even really mean anything to a lot of players because the NBA is still doing all-star voting. The guys are still probably going to have that one extra all-star appearance added to their resume because, I mean, that would be the least the NBA could do. Be like, hey, we're not having a game, but you still deserve to have the all-star accolade. And, you know, for some guys, maybe that's, they have extra incentive because of a contract. Although I think the all-NBA teams mean a little bit more. But, I yeah, I kind of side with the players on this one. I think the all-star game, it's kind of just silly for the league to even entertain. But that's just me. Uh, I'm trying to think of like some noteworthy news that went down since we last spoke. Um, it's kind of tough because a lot of the a lot of the news is just focused on the play, which I don't mind. You know, I love what is going on in the NBA right now. The Jazz are steamrolling everybody. I didn't notice this until yesterday, but they have the best record in the league. They're like 19 and five. Shout out to Quinn Snyder. Shout out to Monty Williams, who has the Phoenix Suns at fourth in the West at 14 and nine. I think that if the Suns make the playoffs and do so at this rate, I think Monty Williams has the best shot to win the Coach of the Year award. Because while Quinn Snyder and the Jazz are doing some incredible things, the Jazz were a good team last year. They were a good team the year before that. The Suns. They've been under 500 since like 1765. Like, it's been two decades since the Suns have been. Two decades? Yeah, it's been about two decades since the Suns have been relevant, like really relevant, like contending for it, the finals and making a deep playoff run, you know, like Charles Barkley, Dan Marley, all that shit. But I mean, the Suns, I'm looking at their numbers right now. If their offense improves, right? Right now, they're 23rd in scoring volume and 16th in efficiency. A lot of their volume issues track back to their pace, though. I'm highlighting this, even though nobody can see it, but they have the second slowest pace in the league right now. And if they were to pick it up, I think the scoring numbers would improve drastically. But their defense is locked down. And, you know, Devin Booker, Chris Paul, these guys are absolutely killing it. Michael Bridges, killing it too. DeAndre Ayton, just a monster Jay Crowder this team is so this team is built so well that for Monty Williams not to win coach of the year it's going to take some incredible gymnastics from some of the other guys who are coaching teams because I mean I'm just looking at some some of the people on the list right so Doc Rivers obviously a great coach. And the fact that the Sixers are the best team in the East right now is not really surprising to anybody because they've had that potential for a while and they've really just never been able to harness it. But again, Doc Rivers has a track record of being an elite coach. Same thing with Mike Budenholzer. Steve Nash, as much as I would love for Steve Nash to win coach of the year, I really don't think that's in the cards because a lot of the net success is, of course, reliant on Kevin Durant, James Harden, and Kyrie Irving. What Monty Williams is doing in Phoenix, at least to me, is a little different because 
he can't just lean on Devin Booker and Chris Paul. I mean, he can, but he can't lean on them like Steve Nash can lean on two former MVPs and a guy in Kyrie Irving who is one of the most gifted scorers to ever play in the NBA. The circumstances of these two teams' success, successes are, it's just different. It, that's the only way to describe it. It's, it's just different. Um, of course, Frank Vogel is going to be in talks just because, you know, the Lakers. But I think that the Lakers have, well, I don't even want to say the Lakers, but I think Frank Vogel has the same problem that Steve Nash has as to where the team is so good that, like, the coaching is almost undervalued. Like, you got LeBron, you got AD, you have arguably the deepest team in the NBA. You should be atop the Western Conference. Like, at least when I'm looking at the coach of the year, I want it to be someone who kind of did the most with the least, if that makes any sense. I'm not saying that the Phoenix Suns are a dog shit team, but compared to the rest of the teams in the West, there are a bunch of teams that should be ahead of them. I'm looking at Portland, who is not. I'm looking at Denver, who is not. I'm looking at Golden State, who is not. I'm looking at Dallas, who is not. I'm looking at, who else am I looking at? Houston. I mean, I would say Houston, but like they really don't have James Harden. But Houston is still doing fairly well, considering um, they don't have James Harden. But Monty Williams is ahead of teams and coaching staffs who are kind of just, I don't want to say better. Well, I mean, Denver is definitely better than Phoenix is, and they should be higher in the standings, but um, they're fucking not. Same thing with Dallas. Dallas is just shit in the bed atrociously. But I mean, that's kind of how I'm looking at this. Like, I think that Monty Williams is a very talented coach. It's very apparent, and he's got a talented unit, but the talent on the court isn't like they're. I don't want to say the Suns aren't oozing with talent because they are, because they have Devin Booker and Chris Paul, of course, but they just have a very. Wow, I really backed myself into a pickle here trying to explain why the Suns are not dog shit, but they're not. And I think anyone who watches them knows they aren't. Like, they're competitive, but again, it's just kind of like the surprise of it. Wow. Okay, well, that was a fucking fail. I just got a fucking phone call. It's probably spam. And I got a fucking fam, a spam phone call from whoever, and it paused my video, which is awesome. I wonder if it's because my phone wasn't on Do Not Disturb, but man, fuck it. We'll just go no video for the rest of the show. Uh, let's see what else happened. So the Jazz kicking the shit out of everybody. Monty Williams making his case to be the coach of the year. I th- I don't I know that there was the Knicks trade for Derrick Rose and this was a very interesting move to me mainly because neither team really improves that much because of it So the Knicks get Derrick Rose and mind you the Knicks are playing very well considering the team that they have. They're 11-14. and 14. Um, 
contending for a playoff spot, actually, which is something that I did not expect this season. But overall, the Eastern Conference is just, it's a crapshoot, really. There's no other way (coughs) to describe it. You got the elite teams at the top, like, you know, talking Philly, Boston, Brooklyn, um, Milwaukee. And really the middle part of the playoff race and the end of the playoff race is it can really go to anybody. And the Knicks are putting themselves in that conversation. How they're managing to do it is by playing, I shit you not, suffocating defense. Like legitimately strangling their opponents. And they're doing it consistently with a roster that when you look at it, does not appear to be that great. To put it into perspective, there is nobody allowing fewer points per game than the New York Knicks. There are only five teams who are more efficient than the New York Knicks in terms of defense. How they got here, I don't really know. I mean, they have Mitchell Robinson, who is a fantastic young player, great interior defender. They also have Nerland Noel, who, whose minutes are kind of sporadic, I'd say. But you look at the rest of the roster, Julius Randle, R.J. Barrett, Alfred Payton, Austin Rivers, Manuel Quickly, Kevin Knox. Not exactly defensive stoppers, but they do have Tom Thibodeau coaching. And Tibbs, as we know, is a defensive-minded coach, very old-school type cat who really just wants his guys to play hard. And the Knicks, they may not do many things well. The offense is kind of stinky. They're not that great from downtown. They really struggle to put up points, but they play hard. And I can respect them. I respect them a lot for that, actually. They play super hard. And that is why they're as successful as they are. Also, because Julius Randle is having an all-star type season, averaging damn near 23 points, 11 boards, and 6 assists. A total aside, what the fuck has gotten into Julius Randle all of a sudden? Where, where is this production coming from? I always knew Julius Randle was a quality player who got way too much hate, I felt. But this is an entirely different level. I think Knicks fans have gone from wanting to send Julius Randle to Siberia to wanting to give him a fucking kiss on the lips because of how great he's playing. And again, it kind of just came out of nowhere. I mean, the last couple of seasons, yeah, you know, Julius Randle put up a decent amount of points, grabbed some boards, but like his development into now a sharpshooter from the outside someone who gets to the free throw line pretty much whenever he wants, and then also averaging six assists a night on top of it for a team that really has no other weapon outside of him and R.J. Barrett. I mean, it's absolutely it's absolutely incredible from Julius Randle. So if the Knicks do decide they maybe want to send him out, his trade value is never going to be higher. And that is something that could probably be done. As we've seen from the last couple of days, the Knicks are looking to 
shake up the team a little bit, they went out and they acquired Derrick Rose from the Detroit Pistons. The deal wasn't really a blockbuster. It was actually whatever the exact opposite of a blockbuster is. It was that. It was Derrick Rose to New York for, it was Dennis Smith Jr. And a couple of second round picks, I think. I'm just checking that right now. Uh, That's great. It wasn't updated on basketball reference. Either way, what you have to know is Knicks get Derrick Rose, Detroit gets Dennis Smith Jr., and a couple of picks. So, it was actually Charlotte's 2021 second round pick. So, what's going on here? Well, remember that Derrick Rose and Tom Thibodeau have a very close bond with one another, having shared some time with the Chicago Bulls. Of course, this is when Derrick Rose was like Derrick Rose. This was when Derrick Rose was D-Rose. He wasn't Derrick Rose yet. This was MVP caliber Derrick Rose. Fucking shit on you in the Eastern Conference Finals, Derrick Rose. He's back under someone who he has a bond with. And the Knicks offload Dennis Smith Jr., who really hasn't been able to do anything for them. I felt that Dennis Smith Jr. had the potential to be a quality player. Really, he just had to go down to the D League or the G League, whatever the fuck they're calling it, and just kind of work on his game in a less stressful environment. And I thought he would have been totally fine. Obviously, that's not the case. And the Knicks kind of have a logjam at point guard. Frank Nilakina was or appeared to be the next starting point guard. And then Emmanuel quickly comes along. And of course, Alfred Payton comes along and fucks everything up. I'm just kidding, of course. But I know that Knicks fans aren't too ecstatic with his with Payton's role in the rotation. But, you know, Emmanuel quickly comes around, and this dude is averaging 12 points in 18 minutes. Then you got Frank, and we know what Frank can do, but Frank's only played in four games this year. And now Derrick Rose comes in, and I know they're not making this move with the intention of him taking them to the finals because that's not going to happen. I really think that they want Derrick Rose in the lineup so that way the offense can run a little bit more efficiently and so that they can have a lead guard who gives them consistent, reliable production. I'm just going to head over to Derrick Rose's basketball reference page real quick. Say what you will about Derrick Rose. He's still a quality NBA player. His production is a little bit down this year. He's at 14 points, shooting 43% from the floor. But just last season, or the two seasons before that, actually, averaging 18 points and shooting about 49% from the floor. If the Knicks can get that type of production from Derrick Rose, I think their offense is going to run much more smoothly and it'll be even better for folks like RJ Barrett and Emmanuel Quickly and Obi Toppin, really whoever, because it's not so stagnant. I mean, of course, Derrick Rose's outside shooting isn't going to help the team really at all. And that's really their weakest link. But I think this is kind of just like a neutral deal for both sides. I mean, Derrick Rose, I don't know if he really wanted to play in Detroit anymore. Like, there's nothing going for him at that rate. Granted, he's not on a contender, which kind of stinks. I don't know how adamant he is or was about going to maybe a team like the Clippers or the Lakers or, I don't know, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, some shit like that, even Brooklyn, perhaps. But if he's not on a contender, at least he's on a team with someone who 
knows him and he's in an environment where he can feel um I don't I really don't even know what he could feel he's just you know he's on a team where his talents are not going to go to waste because he may be playing in the postseason this year and it's probably very unlikely but there is still the chance that D Rose gets traded and goes to a contender I don't know if maybe there's a situation in the future where there's a package Julius Randle and Derrick Rose for a bunch of assets that maybe could happen. I don't know if the Knicks maybe wanted to land somebody like Zach Levine, you know, a middle tier, a high mid tier shooting guard who's still kind of young and is someone who you could realistically include in a rebuild of a contender. I don't know how likely that is. I would not put my money on it. I think Derrick Rose is in New York for the foreseeable future, and then he'll reassess his options at the end of the season or at the end of his contract, whichever comes first. I really I really don't know. I'm actually going to double-check that because I have to sneeze. <coughs> oh, pardon me. Shit. Wow. Oh, damn. Yeah, that was rough. That was a rough one. So, yeah, D-Rose, free agent at the end of the season. Oh, God. You ever sneeze? Your body is just, like, all thrown off. I feel like I just... I feel like I just stepped out of a fucking spaceship. Damn, that was rough. It's like someone just fucking blindfolded me and spun me around and then also, like, shook me up and down. I feel like my balance is off. My speech is kind of slurred. For whatever reason, I promise I'm not an alcoholic. I just have, I'm allergic to something that's in my room. It's probably dust or some shit. But uh, getting back to the fucking conversation before I was so rudely interrupted by my nasal cavity. This move for the Knicks and the Pistons is kind of just like lateral. No team really gets that much better. But I think it was really just a move to get. Derek Rose out of Detroit because Detroit sports, man, I feel for you guys. You got the Pistons. You got the Michigan Wolverines. You got the Detroit Lions who traded Matthew Stafford for Jared Goff. I hope you guys figure it out sometime soon because I cannot imagine being a Detroit sports fan in this day and age. It's got to be tough. It's got, it's got to be. And, you know, some New York City sports fans could feel the same way. The Mets are kind of ass. The, um, who else is ass? The Jets are ass. The Giants are ass. Really, the Bills are the only good New York sports team. I know we got the Yankees and we got the Nets. They're decent. We got the Rangers and shit, the Islanders. Truth be told, I don't even know what the fuck. Hockey looks like. Nothing? No. Thought I heard people calling me. I guess I'm bugging. But I think that might do it for this week's episode. Like, again, nothing's really gone down. And I kind of just wanted to sit sit back and kind of just like pick apart the Super Bowl, have a nice casual conversation because there might be a second episode of the show this week where we sit down and we take a look at Earl Lloyd. Earl Lloyd, for anyone who doesn't know, is really instrumental in 
NBA history. I don't want to give away too much, but he's someone who I think every NBA fan should know. Not because of his statistical prowess or his dominance at the actual game of basketball, but for what he did for the league as a contributor. And that's actually when he got inducted into the Hall of Fame. That's what he got inducted as, as a contributor. So be on the lookout for that. I'm hoping I'll be able to get that out this week. I'm going to do my very best to put that out either on, um, I think it probably Friday or maybe Saturday. I don't really know yet. I'm still researching everything. So I'm just going to put that out there. As always, any way that you guys can support the show, I am super grateful for, whether it's following on social media, subscribing on iTunes or Spotify, your preferred podcast player, leaving a rating or a review. I know ratings and reviews are especially helpful for Apple and their podcast algorithm, but even just listening, taking some time out of your day to sit and just, you know, chill, catch a vibe, hang out. I mean, I'm, I'm super grateful to anybody and everyone who has ever came through and listened. So once again, thank you guys very much, and I'm going to catch y'all in the next one.